Hello and welcome to Author Conversations, presented today by Arcadia Publishing and History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and even though a lot of our nation's beaches remain closed at this time, you may not want to go back into the water after listening to this episode. Today I am speaking with Robert and Patricia Heyer, the authors of the upcoming book Shark Attacks of the Jersey Shore, which will be available Monday, August 17th, 2020. Every summer thousands flock to the Jersey Shore for its beaches and boardwalks, but lurking in the depths beyond is a historic threat to tranquility. Dozens of shark attacks and interactions have occurred throughout Jersey Shore history that reveal bravery, heartbreak, and the hubris of man. A boy paid a gruesome price for teasing a trapped shark in the first recorded attack in 1842. The three bloody attacks of 1960 left one man's limb amputated. The horrific summer of 1916 included seven attacks in a two-week span and crafted the caricature of the killer shark that remains in popular culture today. Authors Patricia and Robert Heyer dive into the history of when two apex predators, man and shark, cross paths on the shores of New Jersey. Bob and Pat, thanks for joining me today. A pleasure to be here. Yes. So what got the two of you interested in sharks and shark attack history? Well, it kind of started a long time ago with my research. Uh, I'm a biologist. And I've been researching uh, shark attacks in New Jersey for the past 20 or some years. But uh, unfortunately, I'm not much of a writer. I'm very, very technical. I'm not uh, very expressive. And uh, Pat's been writing, and uh, she took my uh, research and turned them into some great stories. And I found it really fascinating uh, as I looked over his research and began to match it with my love of history um, and to put together the incidents of, of shark attack with what was going on here along the shore from 1642 to the present. And I thought it made a, a captivating story that uh, readers would like. Yeah, absolutely. And when I started reading the book, and I was reading about these early attacks and then attacks that happened later on throughout the book, I was surprised to learn that a lot of them seem to have happened not on land, but on boats and around boats. And, you know, early on in the book, we even have a flying shark. Uh, Sure. (laughs) Were you too surprised by this also? Because we usually think of shark attacks happening on the beach or near to the beach. Well, you see, not really, because when you think about it, shark attacks are such a very, very rare phenomenon. You know, we kill millions of sharks every year, but uh, they do very, very little to us. And you'll see, even from the very first story, man is usually involved in some way or another in the attack itself. It's very, very rare for the shark to just uh, act as a predator on a a person. Uh, I'm a very staunch uh, shark uh, conservationist, and I believe that when you learn the history of these stories, you'll see that, for the most part, man had some role to play in their actual accident. Uh, Either they were fishing, like you said, or they were somehow engaged in doing something with the shark where the shark didn't just come out of the water to attack them on the beach, but instead attack as part of their interaction. Yeah, that's true. And also bearing in mind that we're talking about a seacoast, you know, we've over a hundred miles of shoreline. And so with boating and fishing and surfing and all that sort of thing going on, um, 
it's only reasonable, I think, that many of the encounters between sharks and humans are going to occur uh, on boats and that sort of thing. So I didn't find that surprising at all. Yeah, I mean... uh I guess the reason it surprised me is because, you know, here along the South Carolina coast, you hear about, you know, especially when you get into the summer months with crowded beaches, you know, you have somebody get a, you know, a nibble here or, a, mm-hmm. for lack of a better term, a chunk bit out of them here or there. Um, so, you know, to the lay person, you know, who, do, who you know doesn't study sharks as much as the two of you have, I guess that's why it was a little surprising to me to learn that. But I want to take a step back to that first recorded attack in the book. And it was a, you know, the old case of someone saying, let's poke it with a stick, so to say, um, yeah. that yeah. brought about yeah. that shark yeah. attack. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Uh, the, the shark was floundering in the mud and kids came up to it and were poking the poor thing with a, a stick. And then somebody got bit. Uh, unfortunately, when a shark gives, takes a bite at somebody, it got pretty nasty consequences as was in that first attack back in uh, 1842. And it, kind of uh, occurred throughout. As you read through the stories, you'll see that many times it was, you know, man's foibles that kind of led to those encounters. You know, some of them were being brave and silly, and some of them were just being plain foolish, because it is a marine predator. Yeah. And, you know, we you know, there are times, you know, where there are those kind of things, but I was also wondering about, and it was kind of, it kind of goes in my next question. You talk about like the two boys who are out and there is the boy at the tiller and he had his arm dangling toward the water uh-huh. and the shark comes and bites the arm. And you also had the two men, I believe in the pleasure crafts and the shark comes up and starts ramming the boats. And it sounds like the sharks are attacking without provocation, but are the shark, in the case of the boy, did the shark confuse the arm with maybe some other type of animal? And why would the shark, in the t- case of the pleasure craft, was he maybe um, agitated because the boats were in his area or what have you? What would well, cause those attacks, maybe? There's a couple possibilities. In the first one, the hand trailing through the water has to look a little bit like some kind of bait. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like trawling something behind you. And shark might have taken an exploratory bite out of it just to see what it was. It probably triggered a uh, uh, game response in its if it saw those fingers trailing through the water. As far as the, the pleasure boats go, there's a couple of things, a couple of theories. Some are a lot of the pleasure boats are also fishing. In fishing, they chum the waters, and so the, the waters become thick with chum. As they, here in New Jersey, when they fish for bluefish and uh, bass and all, and they're chumming out in the water, uh, they come in and they get a little too close. And then uh, when they get close, they they quit looking, they, uh, their eyes roll over for the most part, the nictitating membrane goes up on their eye, and they just start biting out, and sometimes the boat's part of that. Uh, also, the, the fact that the boats also make noise, people are splashing in the water, giving off the sounds of a distressed animal, and so sometimes the, the predator is actually drawn to that area because of the sounds of the, hmm. the pleasure. And what I was also reading the book, I was surprised at some of the ways people were, would fight off a shark that's attacking, whether it be with an oar or a rifle, but with the gentleman who went out and he had rented a, he had chartered a fishing boat with his friends and he enjoyed swimming in the deep ocean, oh, in yeah. deep water. Mm-hmm. And the captain, he decided by, that nobody else wanted to, so he went by himself towards the end of the fishing trip to swim in the deep water. And 
he started being, you know, trailed by sharks. Can you kind of recount that story of what the captain of the boat used to try to fend off the sharks? Because I found that well, story very interesting. As I recall, he, he fired at it with a, a flare gun. Yes. Yeah, it was a flare gun. Yeah. It sounded a lot like, to be honest with you, a little embellishment on his part. He must be quite a shot to be able yes. to uh, pick off a shark in the water with a flare gun. But that's as it was reported in the news at the time. Uh, um, he may have fired something into the water. I'm sure there's some truth in the story. He may have fired trying to, to flail it off or, or uh, scare it off, but... Uh, yeah, firing at a shark with a flare gun is probably not the best way of going about defending yourself. But if you listen to him, he, he hit it straight on. Stranger things have happened. <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I'm not discounting. I mean, he might have been hell of a shot. You never know. <laughs> he may be. Yeah. He's got to be a flare gun champion for sure. Yeah, I was just, when I was reading that story, I mean, that in the way you wrote that, too, I mean, I always felt like I was there. It was very well written, and I... I was. Kind of, oh, I felt you. like I was there, maybe trying to push him through the water to get back to the boat. <laughs> also, <laughs> and I was trying to make that. I'm sure the engine wasn't. I know it was. You know, early 1900s. So I was trying to make the engine go a little bit quicker too to get to him when he was being uh, told by those sharks. So it was very well written. Uh, that that piece of the book. And sometimes we only know there was a victim of shark attacks. We don't know who the victim of the shark attack was because he That's might right. find a foot. Or only a body part, or sometimes just a piece of clothing. Mm-hmm. That that can happen. Absolutely. With with a case like that, and it's happened in New Jersey. It's actually, it's happened all over the world. There's been some really famous cases with that. You really don't know if the shark did the killing in that case, or if the shark just came across the person who had drowned, or found the way into the water one way or the other and scavenged. Uh, that's there's no way to real tell really tell at that particular point what happened. Nowadays, with forensics, I'm sure we could tell a little more how the person died. But back in the historical accounts, for the most part, we just know that these shark uh, parts ended up inside of the shark. And we don't know if he took them from the living person themselves or if he came, happened to cross a uh, dead person in the water. That's uh, it, It's just crazy to think about. I mean, you know, either way, you know, it's a victim. We don't know if it's a victim, you know, of... You know, Someone who just right. had an accident falling into the water mm-hmm. or what have you. but could have been an accident. It yeah. could even have been. A, there was a famous case in, uh, I believe it was Australia, oh, yeah. where they actually solved the murder, where the, they found an arm of a man with a tattoo on it and uh, matched it to a, a particular person who were able to solve a murder as a result of it. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing, you know, that they would to think that a shark actually fed upon a person or fed upon a body in the water, and they were able to recover that shark recover that body, the piece of the body, and still convict the person as a result of it. Okay, see, Bob, it's crazy stories like that that turn out to be true that makes me think that flare shot could happen. Yeah, I guess it, <laughs> I guess it could have. I just, if you ever see a flare gun, they just kind of like shoot off in any direction. Like I say, he's got to be pretty good, you yeah. know? It was a lucky shot. It was a lucky shot. <laughs> I want to believe. So. It, it had to have been. I'll, I'll buy it for him. You know, I'll say he did it. <laughs> All right, now I want to get to the famous summer of 1916. Ah, yes. And I know this is a summer that could be what the author of Jaws based that story off of. And I can see why. Uh, First, just let me say throughout the book, the two of you did a great job with narration and the work in this chapter, especially with what occurred at Matawan. I got that right, right? Right. Great. It was incredible. And it was historical and it was suspenseful. 
And at the same time, though, you two of you did a great job being respectful to the victims and their family. And we well, won't listen. You know, we, Go ahead. Sorry. That's we, important. I'm sorry. We live here. They're, they're people. And yes. they're, you know, that's what's most important is, you know, they're, they're people. This was a horrible, horrible event. And, you know, it has to be treated with dignity and respect. Absolutely. There's already 100%. been so much sensationalism about it. Quite a uh, bit. I thought it was very, you know, we thought it was very important to, to present it that way and also to present it as part of that summer of shark attacks. Because that was really a two-week period led up to that where they were, there was a stream of attacks right up along the coast. Yeah, and then also, you know, you kind of, you just, you just opposed, or sorry, I always trip up on that word. You know, what else was going on in the world at that time, too? You know, it, World War One exactly. was happening, you know, the, it, but you, you know, you, you kind of, it's always amazing with history, you kind of think only this was happening at that time. No, there were other things happening in the world while that was going on. Um, but sure, for two yeah. weeks. The typhoid was all over the yeah. place. It was a, a terrible time. Yeah. Hey, and we kind were, of reminiscent of now. Really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We were gearing up for a big pandemic, kind of like you know what we're yeah. in right now. But for if you think about it, but for them in this area of New Jersey, this was their world for two weeks. You right. know, it it truly was. And you know what's what's amazing is it's it's. I was thinking talking about the parallels till today. We still have people here in New Jersey that are going out and violating the social distancing. And back then, I read many, many accounts of even though these sharks were attacking, there were still a lot of people in the water. Some guy uh, in Belmar injured his neck really badly diving in the water. People were in the water not uh, paying any attention to the news and not paying attention mm -hmm. to the fact that they were asking people not to go into the water. So, I mean, it's, you know, the people being people has always been a part of this uh, story. There's, yeah. there's so many parallels between then and now. It's amazing. And the stories, the uh, as you just mentioned, putting the uh, shark encounters into perspective of what else was going on at the same time and throughout history here in New Jersey, uh, I thought gave the stories more flavor, and you could understand more how people were reacting. And I hope that it painted a better picture of the event and the scene uh, at the time. Yeah, I always did see. I think what's most important about those series of attacks, too, is we've added some information there that's been left out. Many people have written books on that particular attack, but they only have part of the evidence. I know there was a doctor who wrote a book, and there have been uh, others that have written books on that particular subject. But actually, there's, there probably was a, there's a fairly credible attack that took place on uh, June 30 in Atlantic City that in uh, every way... Uh, fits with the, the details of the rest of the attacks. And the attacks didn't necessarily end at Matawan. There are two very credible uh, attacks that took place a few days later, just across the bay, a short distance across the bay. In, it was uh, the next day, yeah. In, uh, Staten Island and in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it wasn't very far at all. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of information on those attacks that's never been brought to light. It's just that I've been researching them so long, I came across all this new information. And uh, to me, I think that when we take a look at these attacks, it, it's going to make a lot more sense as to what really happened. You know, a, a boat was attacked. We, we actually found the last incident that we found was uh, days after 
the attack in uh, in Matawan, just a few miles away in Seabright, there was a rather aggressive attack on a boat, which literally knocked people into the water, and they had to thin off the sharks so they could get themselves back in. I mean, something was really going on in the water at that time with a shark or sharks that was not common at all. And the uh, we really should investigate this area and look at the history because, uh, like you say, things are shaping up recently. You know, we have a lot more sharks in the water now than we have. I mean, due to the conservation efforts, there are more great whites here. Pat and I saw one earlier this year in the uh, mist. We saw what was probably a great white right off of uh, Seabright, just offshore, just after the, uh, the beach season. And, uh, you know, this can happen again, and it's a very important and relevant thing to study these attacks. Absolutely, and I know we have one that we keep track of that visits the Low Country down here a lot. She's a pretty large shark, and with the and this just that's just the one you know about because right. you can track you know, that she's tracked using satellite tracking, and it's really neat to be able to watch her, you know, comings and goings, and she'll go down to Florida, and then you know she'll make her way back up here, but she comes into our creeks. Here. She'll come into, you know, oh. Shims Creek and she'll, you know, swim around the creeks around Folly Beach, too, which is another one of our popular beaches. And that kind of brings me to that question because, uh, to one of my questions that happens at Matawan because, you know, a, you, you write about the boat captain, you know, he's coming in that afternoon of those, of, you know, where there's, you know, there's so many attacks that one day and he sees that large, you know, gray object under the water. And he knows it's a shark. So he rushes in on his motorboat, and he calls ahead to try to warn. And I think it was the sheriff or constable says, you know, a shark can't survive in brackish water. But surely by this time in the 20th century, they knew that sharks could survive in brackish water, right? Well, yes, they did. However, the the science was really sketchy back then. I was reading several of the, you know, the contemporary articles of the Times local, and uh, the theories that came out from really credible fishery scientists, Museum of Natural History scientists in uh, New York, were uh, very, very much basic. They, they came up with ideas about how sharks behaved and stuff that were not necessarily true. And they kind of like just perpetuated these, these same theories over and over again. And uh, we do know that the great whites can enter brackish water, Typically, it's bull sharks only that enter brackish water, but great whites have, and they can as well. It could have been a, a great white coming in. Uh, I think what's amazing with this particular story is well, it's how far that actually is from the ocean. The Matawan Creek is this little creek that just kind of meanders around in the uh, weeds, and uh, it's, it's amazing to think that such a large shark would have made it that far back, but obviously he did, and uh, he did quite a bit of damage, and Yes, like you said, Captain Cottrell was the person uh, that reported it. He saw the shark. He was a man of the sea, and he reported this, but instead of doing anything, they kind of dismissed him because I guess he was a little bit of a local character. Mm. And, you know, and I want people to buy the book and read the book, but there was, you know, there is a young victim, and in the process of trying to get to the young victim, there's, you know, other victims that are, you know, attacked, and it's just... It's, you know, no wonder, you know, this is, you know, and I do believe it is, no matter what the author says, the basis for 
the novel and the movie Jaws. I mean, it's it's really you know, it's, like I said, the chapter is really really well written, and it's just you know one of the shark attack stories here. And there's many more shark attack stories in the book, but towards the end of the book, there is one that caught my attention because it's not one that you really think about. And this attack is much more recent, and it happened in December of 2009. And it can be found beginning on page 123 of the book. And it happened in a place, like I said, that I never thought of an attack occurring. Do you know the story I'm thinking about? Are you talking about the aquarium? I am talking about the aquarium. I never really thought about I never really thought about an attack happening there. That's that, and it didn't even wasn't even fully in the water yet. So, can you give us a little bit of that story? It was. Go ahead, Pat. It was was pretty serious too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, I see that as sort of a one of those things of a a mishap. Um, The divers, obviously, in any aquarium, go in and clean and feed and do all sorts of things, and that seemed to be. a matter of if he stepped backwards into the tank, he just collided with the shark and got a little nip as a result, which, you know, seems normal. Um, and, of course, then they reacted, you know, as, as anybody would. Um, but to me, that just kind of opened up uh, a picture to remind us that that we, that if you're operating an aquarium or that sort of area where the sharks are contained, they're still wild animals. Mm-hmm. And now when that shark had been in captivity for some time, but nonetheless, even like two kids, if they run into each other, then sometimes they're ready to fight. Well, this shark was ready just to give them a little bit of a nip. And I think the diver's issues uh, came about because he apparently wasn't treated perhaps correctly the first time because he got an infection or something and had to, then had to go back for a yeah. second surgery. They found a shark's uh, tooth the second time around, still embedded. Yeah, in that's him. right. They missed the tooth. Yeah. It's a pretty so, big miss. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you don't think of a shark attack occurring in Camden, that's for sure. No. And, you know, and even our aquarium, I mean, anytime you go to an aquarium, you know, there's always diver shows where, you know, there'll be someone outside the aquarium. You know, most aquariums have the big tank. You know, and you can have someone outside of the aquarium or outside the tank talking to the diver so the diver can have questions asked to him by the audience outside. And there's always sharks swimming around inside the big tanks. And that one just kind of, you know, stuck out to me because uh, thankfully there were, it didn't sound like there was anybody there that witnessed it. But I was just thinking, what if there was a whole bunch of like little school kids there (laughs) when that happened? You know, it could have been very traumatizing for them. It happened, I think, at least one other time, because as I recall, I think Pennsylvania only ever had one shark attack, and it was in an aquarium as well. Uh, so, I mean, it must happen. I guess if you're keeping these big animals from time to time, they're going to take a nip at you. Yeah. Yeah, I could, I could definitely see that happening, no doubt, more often. Than, well, than what we probably know about. I mean, uh, surely though they have suits they wear that would pro- that offer some more protection than your normal diving suit if you're going to be diving around the animals like that. I would imagine, or I would hope, they would have that. I think sometimes they. It's probably like in the zoo. You just get over familiar with the animals that you take care of, and you probably take shortcuts at times. Yeah, yeah, that's probably true. 
All right, I do want to give you the opportunity, if you would like, um, to tell us more about shark conservation, and because I know the book is about shark attacks, but and you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but um, you know, sharks aren't creatures we should be afraid of all the time. You know. Well, I I think that the main thing about shark conservation in the book is the fact that the book will show you that uh, actually being attacked by a shark is such a very very rare thing. And in most cases, we do something that actually is, if not at fault, totally a contributing factor for it. I think that the purpose is not to fear sharks, but it's to make us understand, you know, just the fact that we go millions of people in the Jersey Shore go in the water every day on hot summer's day. If sharks wanted to eat us, they're there. They're there all the time. They certainly could. They obviously aren't looking to get us. They aren't out to get us in any way. We pose a much greater threat to their, them surviving as a species than they do to us, for sure. Uh, God knows that this terrible pandemic is wreaking great havoc on everybody, and it, it's taking so many American lives, many, many more than a shark would. But there's always going to be that primordial fear, I guess, of being attacked by an animal, of being killed by an animal that, that frightens people. Uh, I want people to understand a couple of things. One, that uh, first off, they, it wasn't just the 1916 shark attacks were the only ones that took place. Mm -hmm. There have been more incidents, and I want them to understand a little bit more of why, and that's why Pat did such a good job of telling the stories, making them human, and making people see that people are a, a part of the story. And remember, no matter what accident whether you're at fault or not, a shark incident where a shark bites you is going to change a person's life. They're just so well equipped of doing damage that even a minor mishap causes a life-changing uh, thing for a person forever. And so these are incidents that changed a person or more than one person's life for forever. But uh, again, uh, as far as conservation goes, we do need to protect them. Healthy oceans need healthy predators. A sign of a healthy ocean is a predator. If we have a lot of predators, then that means that all the things underneath of it are, are functioning and doing well. When the predators are gone, disease runs rampant. Mm -hmm. uh, I used to teach marine science in high school, and, and I always you know, taught the kids, it's so nice you know, to think about these beautiful seals, and well, what if we kill the great white that's eating them? Well, if we kill the great white that's taking the, the infirm seals out of the population, then what happens is thousands of seals die from seal pox and other diseases because the predator's role has been taken away. Predators actually are helpful to the prey that they prey on in nature. Nature's a wonderful thing, and we need the sharks, and I hope they're always here in New Jersey, and I hope that we learn to live with them safely and have a healthy respect for them at the same time. What do you think, Pat? And I think uh, to add to what Bob just said, it's important in conservation to understand our, also our roles and our attitudes. Uh, you know, when you say the word shark, you know, we go into fight or flight reflex. And yet at the same time, we're terribly fascinated by this creature that we have, have dubbed as so, quote, dangerous. There's many creatures in the marine world uh, which pose a threat to us, but that's not our world. 
That's not our realm. We're land creatures. So we have to be sufficiently respectful that when we go into the into the oceans, that we are entering someone else's realm. And in so understand that there will be threats and dangers in so doing. And also keeping in mind that not all sharks are going to even come near us, you know. Yeah. I see it as, you know, some are provoked, some are not provoked, but a lot of it is how we look at it. We almost look for sharks to be nasty and mean. I mean, look how we dress kids up in, in costumes, and there's movies, and there's TV shows, and chachis down at the, along the boardwalk of shark teeth and everything. So part of it is how we're looking at it as, as, as humans as well. All right. Well, hey, I really appreciated talking to the two of you. Thank you for taking time out of your day to being with me. Well, it's our pleasure. All right. And uh, I hope the book does well, and I hope you two stay well. Thank Thank you you so much. Stay safe. Same to you. Stay safe. And, of course, I want to thank you, the audience, for listening. You can find Pat and Bob's book, Shark Attacks on the Jersey Shore, for pre-order online at ArcadiaPublishing.com. And while you're at Arcadia Publishing, look for other books on your town by entering in your zip code to the search bar. Are you interested in being a local history author? Does your town or state have a history that needs to be told? Scroll down to the bottom of any page on our website and click the Make Me an Author button to learn how to write a book with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. Have a question for me or an episode idea? Want to thank me for the nightmares from this week's episode? Shoot me an email at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. Once again, I want to thank Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the theme song for the podcast. And you can find them on Facebook under the name Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project. I'll talk to you soon.